You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Little theologians, I want you to draw a picture that's in this passage from Luke chapter 5. And you're going to have to draw a picture of a house that is crammed with people, and the courtyard of that house is also crammed with people. But the patio on the roof is wide open. So that should give you some hints of what scripture we're going to look at this morning. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. It's the healing of a paralytic man. Luke 5, 17 is where we are as we slowly make our way through Luke. If you don't have a Bible, if you could uh, hold your hand up and Patrick will make sure that you have a Bible. Uh, I like to, to dive to specific verses in the middle of the sermon. Don't want to catch you off guard, but that's what I do. So Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 17 is, uh, is where we'll be. Uh, Patrick has a Bible for you. Before we even read scripture, though, let's do this. Let's go to God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you for this word. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, would you guide our thoughts that we would understand your word more and more? Would you also guide our hearts? That if we are here this morning as Christians, our affection for you will grow through your word. And for those here this morning who are not Christians, we pray, Heavenly Father, that they would witness a body of people who submit to the authority of someone else, the writer of this Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit. Be with us now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The passage again is Luke chapter 5. And our narrative begins at verse 17, and we'll read all the way to the end, uh, to to verse 26, the end of the narrative. So Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. 
and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Remember, this is the word of our Lord. I want you to see in this passage that there is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus as Luke uh, tells the ministry of Jesus that it might be an encouragement to this man by the name of Theophilus addressed in the beginning of Luke chapter 1. It's a turning point because Jesus' notoriety, his fame, his popularity has expanded into dangerous regions. What do I mean by that? His fame and his notoriety has expanded into Jerusalem itself. Do you remember in the last narrative that we looked at last week, the man who had leprosy, who was healed from that leprosy, Jesus instructed him to be silent, as you remember, but he also said to go and show himself to the priest. Now, I'm deriving from Luke 5.14 that when Jesus sends him to the priest, he's actually sending him to the priest whose ministry is in Jerusalem. But now, in the scene that we're looking at this week, Jesus is becoming famous among people who are really opposed to him because now what's happening is there is a gathering of Pharisees and teachers of the law before Jesus. And this is the first time in Luke's gospel that we've had a reference to these teachers of the law and these Pharisees. And here they are gathering around Jesus. And I'm suspecting that that man who was healed from leprosy had something to do with that as he goes to the priest in Jerusalem in Luke 5.14. And so Jesus' fame and notoriety is expanding, but it's expanding in areas that could get him hurt. These are the kind of people that you don't want your fame to be expanding into if you have an earthly sense of this passage. But Jesus, of course, doesn't care. And Luke tells us that folks are coming from every village in Galilee and Judea to see Jesus and even from Jerusalem right there in our passage. And Jesus is teaching, and it seems as though he's teaching in an informal way. It is not a teaching in a synagogue, and it's not a teaching on the Sabbath. Those are new elements that are introduced to the teaching ministry of Jesus. But it's important to note that the Pharisees are there. These are the men who will provide the definitive judgment for what Jesus can and cannot do, and the definitive judgment for what Jesus can and cannot promise. If they say it's allowed, it's allowed. If they say it's not allowed, it's not allowed. The reason I'm, uh, I'm forcing you to look at this passage in such a way to see the biblical material as describing a change or a turning point in Jesus' ministry is because I want you to see that inside this house there is a war that is brewing And you might stand on the outside of the house and look at the house and see, yes, indeed, there are crowds of people there, but I'm not sure that a war is brewing inside, but a war is brewing inside. Because Jesus is going to assert that he has a different kind of authority than the authorities that are in the room. In first century uh, Judaism, there would have been probably 6,000 of these religious leaders in all of Israel. And so it would have been rare for a person to even come into contact with so few a number of people. And yet, word has gotten around that inside this particular house are Pharisees and scribes. They're in there, in that house. The authority of our nation is in the house But Jesus is going to cast his own authority in a very different way. He's going to say that his authority is beyond theirs in two ways. 
First, his authority is beyond theirs in that he has the authority to recreate. Let me tell you what I mean by that phrase. The paralytic man is beyond human help. But Jesus is the one who is able to refashion that body so that that body is healthy, to actually reattach the the nerves in this man's body, to reanimate the tissue, to reconnect neurons in his head. And he does it with his word. It's a different kind of authority than the authority of the scribes and Pharisees presently in the house. He has the authority to recreate an authority that God had at creation when he fashioned the world with his very words. But Jesus also has an an authority to reconcile a person that they might be able to stand before God. An authority to recreate means an authority to reattach nerves, but an authority to perfectly reconcile a person to God is to reattach man to God, to reattach broken man filled with the pollution of Adam's guilt, to reattach that man to God. He has the authority to recreate, and he has the authority to perfectly reconcile. His authority is so very different than the authority of the religious leaders of the day. It's not a difference just in degree. It's an utterly, substantially different kind of authority. And that's why I think the theme of this this, uh, narrative for us this morning is that Jesus possesses a unique authority to reconcile us to God. Jesus possesses an utterly unique authority to reconcile us to God. And I want to begin by looking at a paralysis inside the house just as well as the paralysis outside the house. And I actually want to begin with inside the house. A paralysis inside the house. Verse uh, 19 tells us that the setting is a house. And it would be a two-story house, clearly. It has a second story on it. And it's a house that is uh, filled with people. But a house in this era would have uh, six feet above the bottom story. It would have another story up top that would be entirely open. And it would be accessed not by an indoor staircase, but by an outdoor staircase. And when one got to the roof, they would see that in between the rafters had been spread straw and mud and perhaps mud bricks. That may be what Luke is referring to when he says that there are uh, tiles on the roof. And inside this house is filled with religious leaders of the day. They had come far and wide. And Luke says that they've come far and wide to sit there. If you look in the beginning of our passage, they're sitting there. But they're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. And the verb that Luke uses to describe the way in which they are sitting there is a special, vo- a special verb that, d- that shows us that they're not sitting in submission. They're sitting equal to Jesus. They are there, as Matthew Henry says, spectators, censors, and spies. That's why in verse 22, we can read that Jesus is, sees in their minds that they're questioning him. Jesus, with his divine power, is able to understand what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. And he says they question in their hearts. They don't question some things about Jesus' ministry. They question everything about his ministry. And so they're not sitting beneath his feet. They're sitting there in an equal status before Jesus. And so Jesus is in the house. Religious leaders are in the house. 
We can assume that, that, that there are crowds that are in the street that have also come into the house. And so there are non-religious leaders who are just participants, witnesses. They are also in the house. But there is also something or someone else in the house. Luke tells us that the power of the Lord is with Jesus. The power of the Lord is with Jesus. Jesus is not there alone. There is a power that is with Him. And this is God's powerful working through His Son. And let me, let me tell you why I think that that's the case. In 524, Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man for the first time. Verse 24, look at it. The Son of Man. This is how Jesus addresses Himself, and it's going to become His favorite self-title. He's going to use it some 25 more times in Luke's Gospel. Isn't that a funny phrase? Have you ever wondered where that phrase comes from? Maybe in your own prayers you have thanked God for the Son of Man. But have you known where that phrase comes from? Ezekiel is often called the Son of Man as God addresses Ezekiel, but I think the answer is from Daniel chapter 7 in a vision there that Daniel has. And what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to contemplate that vision from Daniel chapter 7. Let me tell you what it's like. In this vision some 500 years earlier, Daniel sees God. And God, the name for God in this vision is the Ancient of Days. And God, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. And his clothing is as white as snow. And his hair is pure wool. A reference to the, to the wisdom of God. It's this imagistic picture of who this Ancient of Days is. And he is actually sitting upon a throne that would seem to be a chariot throne. A throne of war, a throne with wheels, and the wheels are on fire, and the throne is on fire. And from underneath that throne are rivers of fire. It is a remarkable scene. And laying before the ancients of days is a book that has been opened. And what you begin to discern in Daniel chapter 7 is that this is a scene of a courtroom. The final courtroom. The highest court. In fact, I would say this is the scariest courtroom in the world. You ever been in a courtroom before? I've been in a courtroom and I wasn't guilty of anything. And it was ominous. But this is the scariest courtroom in the world. And the Ancient of Days is judging the beast and his followers. And he takes away from them their dominion. This is almost like it's a picture of God uh, at the mountain of Sinai, a mountain that's wrapped by lightning and clouds. And the ground, even at the foot of the mountain, is vibrating so that everyone at the foot of the mountain is utterly terrified to ascend that mountain. I think that courtroom is a similar scene. But then someone comes. Seriously, in Daniel chapter 7, someone comes, voluntarily comes to this place, this fiery, frightening courtroom. And the one who comes is the Son of Man. And in the Hebrew, that word Son of Man is, is a focus on the humanity, the mannishness, we could say, of this Son of Man. There's someone who enters the scene who's different, who stands out to Daniel. And he is called the Son of Man. And he approaches the terrifying judge on his terrifying, fire-filled chariot throne. And the Ancient of Days does not judge him. 
The Ancient of Days does not destroy him. The Ancient of Days receives him. And the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man dominion and glory. The Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man all peoples, nations, and languages of the world. And the Son of Man says that they will, or I'm sorry, the Ancient of Days says that they will serve Him, the Son of Man. Luke tells us that the power of the Lord is with Him. God and Son in perfect harmony. God giving to Jesus His power and authority to work His own will. The power of God is also in that house. You know, also we should uh, take note of the fact that Luke tells us that the power of the Lord was with Him to heal them. Maybe some of your Bibles have the word them there. The power of the Lord was with Him to heal them. Uh, my uh, newest edition of the Greek New Testament actually has the word them there. And it's almost as if I think Luke is telling us, again, it's, it's hard to know why the word them is there. The power of the Lord was with him to heal them. It's almost as if that's Luke's signal to us that Jesus is preaching the gospel to all of those in the house. He's offering the message of the gospel to everyone in the house and I don't know if that makes you comfortable or uncomfortable, but I think that's a signal to us from Luke. Jesus is preaching the gospel. Inside this house is a cosmic gathering of God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son is preaching to the people the kingdom of God the Father. And he's saying that that kingdom is here. And so he's preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching the good news. And the audience, instead of uh, running into this presence of God through Jesus Christ, they question him. And this is the paralysis that's inside the house. Rather than running to this Jesus who has the power of God, rather than running into this perfectly harmonious relationship between Father and Son, rather than running into that which has been offered to them freely in the gospel of grace, they actually challenge Jesus. And this is... The paralysis, I think it's the paralysis of the age today, that the gospel is offered by the church of Jesus Christ, and people run about their merry ways, refusing to sit under the feet of Jesus, and instead to sit on an equal footing with Jesus. And when they hear the gospel, they treat it as a myth or a tale, and they don't treat it as a message that has a sender, that the message has been sent from God himself. And they might be willing to have people preach before them, but they are not willing for pre people to preach to them, and so they fight. You know, you're right to critique the church and her leadership, the church in general and her leadership in general. You're right to notice things that uh, don't look very appealing to you, but let me just say this, you're not right to deny the gospel that the church has been called to carry out. You don't have that authority. You, you may feel as though you have the authority to not select the gospel, but you actually don't have that authority. And there will be a time when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he makes your absence of authority really stand out. It'll be very blank to you. You will know it. 
And as you apply all of your uh, critical faculties and all of your judgment on the church and you flex your mind, uh, what you're really doing is you're flexing yourself in refusing to come to Jesus in the gospel. It's almost like uh, you think what you're doing is you're making a wise decision by turning away from Jesus. Uh, You're exercising a strength that you have, but you're really exercising a phantom limb that has no authority at all. Has no authority at all. You're turning from God and you're doing so to your own demise. And you will see that demise. But mark my words, it's just a paralysis. It's just a paralysis. You think you're doing something, but you're not. You think you're choosing apart from God, something better than God. But you're not and you'll be proven wrong. And you'll see that it's been a fool's errand. There's a paralysis that happens inside the house. But to be sure, most clearly, the paralysis is outside the house because there is this man, and this man is truly powerless. He's lying there on either his actual bed. Imagine, Luke just uses a word for bed. This might be the bed that he slept in when he could operate his limbs. And that bed has now become uh, some kind of makeshift pallet of some sort. But this man seems to be, at the very least, uh, crippled, but likely even more. I mean, it could be he was maimed. There's a family of words used to describe uh, the condition of this man. It, it, It could be that he's been maimed. He's been hurt somehow, some kind of energy or injury. But it could also be a part of his condition. It could be he just became sick one day and was unable to use his limbs. But not only is he completely unable to help himself, Mark, in his gospel, he says that this man needs not just one or two or three people to help him, but four people. It takes four people to help this man. And undoubtedly, these are men who have been caretakers of him for a long time. It's not men that he just discovered on his own. These four men have been helping him for a long time, and these four carry him. And certainly his friends are confident that only the man inside the house can help their friend. And surely the paralytic man agrees. Only the man inside the house can help this man. And what they do... I don't think it's just four that are involved in the plan. I think all five of these guys concoct a plan. It is a brave plan. It is a borderline foolish plan. The reason I think that it's a plan and not just made up on the spot is because it's going to involve three or four lengths of rope. Just think about that. It's going to involve three or four lengths of rope, and they're going to have to be five, maybe six feet long to get the man from the patio down inside the room beneath. It took planning. Can you imagine this planning? I I have an idea. Let's break into someone else's property. And let's go up their staircase. And let's start destroying property that's not ours. That's a fantastic plan. And of the five, it seems as though uh, no one stands up and says, wow, there's like seven issues with this plan. Maybe nine. No one does. But they're planning. They're planning to do this. And as they go to the house, the plan kicks into gear. And they push through the crowds to get not to the doorway to the house, but to the staircase that leads to the patio of the house. And they enter the patio of a private residence. And at the top, they bend down and they begin to 
picking to pick through the floor. Imagine the people below. There's someone on the roof. Surely Jesus is preaching the gospel to them, but someone is, is going to raise their hand and say, something's going on on the roof. Something's going on on the roof. Um, there's this uh, wonderful credit named Tony Paratet who writes about Rome during this time. And he says, Rome, Roman buildings fell down all the time. These are the most secure buildings of the ancient world. They fell down all the time. Engineering, apparently, according to Tony Paratet, was in flux. And these buildings are falling down all the time. Imagine if you're sitting in this crowded room and, and dust starts to fall from the ceiling and big pieces of rock begin to fall from the ceiling. You're going to be torn. Do I look at the ceiling or do I look for the doorway? I am crammed in here. It's going to take me a good 30 seconds to get out. Is that enough time? It's these men, and they're picking through the patio floor. And underneath, there is noise, there is uh, debris coming down, there is dust. There is a tremendous interruption to the preaching ministry of Jesus as the roof begins slowly to cave in. And they have to hurry. Do you know why they have to hurry? Why do they have to hurry? Someone will stop them. Someone will stop them before they do further damage. They're digging rapidly to tear through that patio that they might be able to pull away the tiles and look down to see Jesus. And Luke says that when they lower, Jesus, they, when they lower their paralytic friend down, they lower him into the crowd before Jesus, right before Jesus. It's like the positioning is perfect. Luke is very clear. He is front and center before Jesus. This broken man, through his friends, breaks a stranger's house, runs the risk of breaking heads of people below with rocks. And he enters, verse 19 says, into the midst before Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Verse 19, into the midst before Jesus, right in front of him. Now, I want you to consider this. Think about Daniel 7. Think about that courtroom. Think about the fear and the terror in that courtroom as the Ancient of Days is judging. And I wonder if Luke wants us to understand that these five gentlemen have concocted a plan to not run away from that courtroom, but to run into that courtroom. What kind of person would do that? What kind of a person would do that? Run into the place where Jesus is receiving dominion. Run into the place where God's fiery chariot, His fiery throne, is present with Jesus. God's power being with Him. Why would you run towards that and not away from it? Verse 20 tells us. It's faith. Jesus says specifically that these men have faith. They know that their friend is paralyzed in one way, but they also know that their friend is paralyzed in another way, spiritually paralyzed, and they know that about themselves. They know that we are as paralyzed as our friend, so great is our need, and we must have that Son of Man. They cast all care to the wind, and they rush to Him. They rush to Him. You see, Christians believe that the brokenness of the world and the brokenness within them is evidence that an invader has entered the world. That the brokenness all around us, Christians acknowledge, 
that the world is broken. People die, there are wars, there is sickness. And Christians also acknowledge the brokenness within them that I battle even in myself to work towards the glory of another. Every day of my life, I'm fighting with my own arrogance and my own pride. The power of sin residing in me, surprising me in unexpected ways. Christians speak this way because they honestly believe that the world is a broken place and that I am a broken individual because something has invaded the world and that something is sin. And all of these other brokennesses are evidence of the invasion of sin. Are you, are you willing to admit this morning that there are broken things in the world? I hope so. I hope so. The world is a broken place. I'd like for you to go one step further and admit that something is broken within you. Inside of you, something is broken. Your anxieties about money creep up in surprising ways. Your anxieties about your relationships, about your resume, they creep up in, in very unsuspecting ways. And your thoughts of moral superiority over individuals, that too creeps into your thoughts as you go to bed. Are you ready to admit that there's something that's broken within you, just as there is something broken in the world around you? What's your solution? How do you make this work? How do you get up every day and enter that day? How do you make sense of the brokenness around you and the slight possibility that there might be brokenness within you? What's your solution? Do you fight with Jesus or do you rush to Jesus? Do you argue with him? Do you debate with him? Do you doubt his authority? Or do you tear the roof off of your neighbor's house if that's what it takes to get to your Jesus? Where are you? Well, Jesus, uh, my final point, uh, Jesus works on the root of the paralysis. When the paralytic man is actually let down before Jesus, right before him, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I think that, that word man can be understood as friend. Friend, uh, it's a generic word. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Boy, it's hard to say, isn't it, if the five guys were looking for forgiveness of sin, if they were just looking for one of the five to be healed. That's a tough read. You need to be able to at least say this, they got more than they bargained for. Right? They got more than they bargained for. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, I want to remind you that you've gotten way more than you bargained for. You've gotten way more than you bargained for. As you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you gain this confidence in the work of another. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins are all forgiven you. And that you have a place of privilege before God, covered with the righteous blood of Jesus. You've gotten far more than you bargained for, Christian. What you have in the gospel of grace is more than you can wrap your tiny imagination around. Just like the man who is paralytic, who has his sins forgiven, just like the four friends who uh, have their sins forgiven, they got far more than they bargained for, but that's such a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian. You've gotten more than you bargained for. Christian in Jesus, you've been liberated from your wealth and your status and your personal mission in order to receive the wealth and status and mission of someone else you've received more than you bargained for. Christian, uh, in Christ Jesus, you're able to look backwards and you're, you're able to see how dangerous your life was before you became a Christian. You've gotten more than you bargained for. You have a brand new understanding of your past. You see how sinful and wretched you were. You see how pointless your life was and how dangerous your existence was. 
Christian, you've just, you've gotten more than you bargained for in the gospel. You see things more clearly. Your conscience is more clear than you imagined. I want you to notice how faith actually works in this passage. Both the men who carried Jesus and the paralytic placed getting to Jesus at the center of their existence. They would do whatever it took to get to Jesus. Just for a moment, you who who are Christians, has that desire to be close to Jesus waned? Has it waned? I think of this uh, essay uh, written by a man by the name of uh, Orrin Edgar Clapp. He says this, he says that hell is an endless holiday, the, everla- the everlasting state of having nothing to do and plenty of money to spend on doing it. Sometimes I feel like as Christians, we exemplify that. We don't know what we have in Jesus Christ and our passion to run towards him has waned. There are so many other distractions, so many other things to spend our capital on. And we need to hear or witness this man. We need to hear this passage. And we need to understand that his faith works in a way in which Jesus is the center of everything about his existence. Do you think about your vocation as a Christian? Do you think about your neighbors the way a Christian ought to think about their neighbors? Do you think about your use of time uh, the way a Christian ought to think about their use of time? And all I'm saying, I'm not trying to browbeat you any more than I'm browbeating myself. I'm saying that there is something about the life of these four men that ought to be present in the life of a Christian. That these four men will do anything to get their friend to Jesus. And we need to see more and more of that in the church Christians who desire to know more about the one who died for them on the cross. A desire to serve him far better than they serve anyone else. An affection that is so warm for for Jesus that all the other affections are placed in a proper perspective. That's how faith works in this passage But also, notice how doubt works in the passage. And here I want to address those of you who are here who are not ready to call yourselves Christians. Uh, These men who carried Jesus, uh, or I'm sorry, who carried the paralytic, they surely had unresolved questions. I mean, don't you think, as they're concocting the plan, measuring out the rope? Surely they had some unresolved questions. But they didn't allow these unresolved questions to offset an awareness of their own need. Let me say that again. They didn't allow their unresolved questions to offset their need to be aware of their own brokenness, their own problems. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let's start there. Let's start by admitting that you are broken and that you have no other route. All of your options are hollow options. More money is not going to fix it. Better relationships are not going to fix it. Nothing in your circumstances are going to fix the uncertainty that you feel about Jesus. But you need to know that you have nothing else. And so you see these four men in the paralytic are are teaching the Christian to have zeal for uh, for Christ and are teaching the non-Christian to readily admit their need and see that you have no other possible solution. And when that happens... The Christian then begins to reaffirm the fact that, yes, my Jesus has the authority to save and heal me and to lead me. And that authority has been exercised and he'll never take it away. Christian, you need to know that. 
And if you're here and you're not a Christian, then what you need to know is that there's no, uh, no one else has authority to give you the things that you long for. Jesus has that authority. No one else, not even yourself, because Jesus possesses the unique authority to forgive us our sins and reconcile us to God. A warning in the life of these four men in the paralytic for the Christian and a warning for the non-Christian. Well, let's thank God for his holy word and then confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that uh, takes, well, your word that truly understands who we are and refocuses us on, uh, in Christ on Christ so that we can come to you as Christians and be reminded that the one who has authority has exercised that authority. Our sins are forgiven. We are entirely reconciled to you, Heavenly Father, and can enter into your own fiery courtroom. And we thank you for that. And Father, we thank you for the reminder that there is nothing in this world that will satisfy us. It is the work of Jesus that satisfies And so we pray that our non-believing friends and family members would come to see that. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lead us in the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.